welcome to Press Gazette's Journalism Matters podcast. My name is Freddie Mayhew, editor of Press Gazette, and today I'm joined by Polly Curtis, editor-in-chief of news website HuffPost UK. Thanks for joining me, Polly. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's very welcome. Um, it's a sweltering hot day outside, and we're in your uh, offices in uh, just by Euston Square. But um, just start with some news. So we did report this in Press Gazette, and next week you and your entire news team, is it, 45... Strong. Editorial. I'm taking 45 um, reporters, yes. uh, video journalists, and my editors up to Birmingham for a week. Yes. Um, and what we're doing is really trying to kind of get out of our media bubble yes. and get much closer to our audience. So the first, the first thing to say about it is we're hiring in Birmingham. So this isn't a kind of drive-by, we're coming in and leaving and um, and not not committing to the city. So mm. we've hired Amadeep Bassi, mm-hmm. who's very well-known and respected local news journalist in Birmingham who's uh, freelanced for everyone, basically. Yeah. He's a brilliant story-getter. He's a proper Birmingham person knows everyone there. So that's that's our kind of like big commitment right. to reporting outside the capital. And was it sort of hiring him that sort of inspired the making the move up there or was that you say No, so what what we're gonna do is a week, the entire newsroom operating an open newsroom out of the very famous Bullring shopping centre in the centre of Birmingham. So public can come in? Public can come in and out. Yeah. Um, we will have uh, reception for them, you know, be welcoming people into our newsroom to see how we are operate but to tell us what we should be writing about to tell us what they care about to tell us what's being missed in the media narrative at the moment and you said it was to sort of escape the london media bubble so what, how would you define that you know what is the london media bubble i suppose it's sort of a, a term we're starting to hear more of maybe following brexit and mm. uh, the press calling some things wrong mm. and perhaps people saying well that's because you're you know stuck in you stuck in london too introspective and not getting out there more. Is that sort of how I you see it? I think that's right. I think there has been a period of introspection in the press, and it's not just us, and it's not just the UK. It's it's global. Um, when you think about how the um, established media in the US missed the Trump story, mm. no one really expected him to win. Mm. Um, here, we didn't really call Brexit right. There's been several elections that we just didn't see coming. Um and I think lots of people, this is not an original idea, lots of people have felt that the that country's getting more divided and less um, understanding of what people actually think and feel outside of newsrooms. Um, you think newsrooms aren't sort of getting out, people aren't getting out there enough? I think you, you said that in your piece for sort of announcing this move, didn't you? That I mean, that, I, I don't want to overplay that. Like, sure. lots of newspapers have reporters out and about and yeah. lots of news organisations do. But there has been a creep towards more desk-based reporting. And particularly, kind of, frankly, at our end of the spectrum, when we're, we're running on much tighter margins than a lot of newsrooms, it's, you know, it's always a punt to send out someone out in the office to kind of look for a story... Um, and um, we've just decided it's the only way to be a better news organisation. We need to take those punts, you know, leave London for a week, see what we find, see how it challenges our own understanding of what people care about. Um, you know, I hope to come back with ten ideas for projects for next year that I wouldn't have had otherwise. There's been a lot of talk about trust in journalism, sort of mm. taking a bit of a hit 
of late with fake news turning up and all that yeah. sort of thing. Do you feel that this is this kind of move is rooted in that in some way? Yeah, the, the trust problem, I think, you know, people relate it to fake news a lot. I, I think that is one element, but actually in terms of impact, I think it's a pretty small element. I think lots of people don't feel like journalism is produced for them. Mm. It feels inaccessible. The language is too complicated. The stories are kind of like fifth chapter stories where you have to have read all the others to understand the latest. Mm. Um, So journalism being inaccessible, but also journalism not reflecting their own lives and what they care about. And then there's also the thing about journalists not reflecting the country we're in and um, and being you know more privileged, more educated, more white than than the country we operate in. Um, does HuffPost have a position on Brexit out of interest, or are you sort of neutral on that? Well, I think um, we don't. I mean, we're not like a Guardian background. So I've got a Guardian background, and um, so HuffPost politics are we are rooted firmly in a progressive place. Mm. Um, we have a history that came from the left, but I think. You know, more and more, those things don't mean very much. Um, and I don't... When you look at the issues that people don't care about, they don't fall neatly into a left and right spectrum. Um, and I guess we're trying to get beyond that a bit and just, you know, that's what this is about, is going, well, forget kind of the political narrative even. Like, what is the public narrative? Mm. Now, you said, you said you've made a new hire mm-hmm. in, uh, in Armour Deep up, up in Birmingham. And you're pushing for another in the north of England, is that That's right? right, I can tell you more about that, Go on, actually. Where, where's, um, where's, where's this uh, so, um, based? So what we've done um, in the last few weeks is hired three really fantastic new reporters for HuffPost who are all incredibly experienced reporters. So we hired Amadeep Bassi in Birmingham. We've hired Emma Yule, who was the investigations lead for a North London group of papers, um, award-winning, really Won fantastic. The Award. Won the Paul Foot oh, Award. Yeah. yeah, like really fantastic, fantastic reporter. Um, and we've now hired as well Asma Day, who um, is an investigations um, reporter in Preston. Right. Um, and um, she actually runs an investigations unit for the whole of Johnson in the north. She's a really, really fantastic reporter. Yeah. And a huge amount of excitement there. She has been um, with Johnson Press for... I think it's it's 17 years, and so it's kind of quite a big move for her, but I think she felt, you know, the conversations we had was this kind of um, real kind of kindred spirits about the kind of journalism we wanted to do yeah. that really served its audience yeah. and really understood their lives, and that's what I think local journalism can bring to, um, you know, outfits such as ours. Because so you're... What, so what is your vision for Half Place UK? You, you, you were editor um, last year, was it? You were made editor Yeah, so I, I became editor in chief last September. Mm. Um, and I spent the vast majority of my career at The Guardian, where I was a reporter for most of that. So I did various beats. I did education, Whitehall, health, social affairs, and then I was editing. So I was deputy national editor. And my last job there was digital editor. So what I'd done was kind of like some really like deep reporting, big stories, lots of front pages, reporting on lots of big live events and then really kind of running the daily output of The Guardian for digital. So when this came along it felt like 
an incredible opportunity. And what really attracted me to HuffPost was um, the new management in the US. So right. Lydia Paul Green took over about six months from before me, um, HuffPost US. So she's right. my boss. She came from the New York Times. Um, and between her, Louise Rook, who's her international director, me, the other EICs, there is a real sense of mission around HuffPost. And the EICs? Oh, I'm sorry about that. That's a terrible joke. Editor in chiefs. Right, right, right. So there are 17 editions around the world. Gotcha. Um, oh, that, that, is, that is really <laughs> poor use of jargon. I feel like I should have known that. <laughs> No reason you should have. Um, so uh, you know, this sense of mission to create a news brand that connects with people who are unused. So people who aren't following a news brand at the moment, who aren't kind of having any kind of guidance through um, these very kind of disparate, distributed um, digital media we're all living in now. And I guess that kind of underpins everything I really care about mm. is trying to make news for people who don't feel like news is for them because that's where the democratic deficit is within the system at the moment. It's, you know, if, if there is a threat to journalism, a lot of it actually comes back from people losing a connection with news. And there are some kind of, like, technological reasons for that, like, you know... Uh, um, digital is very distributed people are on lots of different platforms they're not associating with one brand as much as when you commit to buying a newspaper every day and letting it guide you through the world really but that's what we want to do we want to be kind of firmly on our audience's side always punching up um, you know taking up the issues that they really care about really matter to them um, so that people do trust us and come back to us and recognise us and with that working relationship mm. with the U, are you sort mm. of reporting into the US side a lot? Because obviously it's a US website mm. originally when launched in two thousand five. Is that sort of the, hi- the, the hierarchy? Are you fairly yeah, autonomous? No, in your I role? report into Lydia Polgreen, yeah. um, but I have um, huge editorial freedom to interpret that mission and HuffPost mission for the UK audience. And it's a really, really smart international strategy because it says. You know, we are a huge global brand. There's no way around that. Like, we are massive, particularly in the US. Um, But the success of that brand and achieving that mission of reaching audiences that that might be losing touch with news is completely dependent on us being local in individual countries. So, you know, me and all the other editors-in-chiefs around the world have um, autonomy to really interpret that mission and do do with it as, as, as they want. So, you know, a couple of examples about this. The, the, uh, the um, HuffPost Listens project that we're talking about in Birmingham was inspired by something they did in America for the same reasons. When Lydia started in America, she felt that the newsroom had lost kind of touch with what ordinary Americans were about. She put the newsroom on a bus and went round Trump America and did this kind of huge tour of 22 states, I think it was with the newsroom on a bus, just listening and asking people questions. Mm. And I think it was a really profound experience for the newsroom there, and I wanted to kind of learn from that, but I thought, number one, I'm not putting a slogan on the bus in the UK after what Boris did, like, really bad look. Um, And number two, I wanted to do something that was really stitched into the audience growth strategy, so targeted places where 
we have potential and we're not reaching it at the moment and really invested in those places and basically to hire reporters there. I think, you know, there's nothing more important than having reporters on the ground mm. for a newsroom. So so that's what we're doing. But you're, you seem to be lucky to be in a position to be able to hire them at the moment. I mean, mm. well, as you say, you've just made four new hires mm-hmm. uh, and... Jess Brammer, mm-hmm. who's come over as your head of news from Newsnight, mm-hmm. um, prior to Mule as well. Um, those are quite big hires. Yeah. Um, well, sort of bluntly, you... where's the money coming <laughs> from? <laughs> so, um, HuffPost's ownership structure is really, really interesting. I think it's a model a lot of people are looking at at the moment. Um, we are owned by Oath. Oath is the product of a merger between AOL and Yahoo last yes, year. when Verizon bought them. And Verizon bought them. So what you have there is Verizon um, responsible for the pipes, the broadband and the phones. They've got a third of America's phones, for example. Because it's a technology communications it's a, company. It's a it? huge telco. And then they've created Oath to um, be both platforms and um, publishers so bringing that model much more closely together. So Oath has platforms such as email and search and Tumblr. Um, and then within that, what they want is really premium quality journalism. And that's HuffPost's kind of role within that world. Right. I haven't had kind of huge investment this year. Um, some of those posts have been created out of kind of natural kind of people moving on and stuff right. and me saying, well, you know, if people leave in London, let's replace them around the country. Um, some of it is a is a, a modest amount of um, investment I've got for this year to build up a leadership team with people like Jess Brammer and Andy Dangerfield from BuzzFeed, Vicky Frost from The Guardian. Like, uh, uh, there is a modest kind of investment there. But, you know, what's really important to Oath and ultimately Verizon is that they, in their world, have trusted content. And it seems... Almost to me, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong, like you're sort of creating a slightly more traditional newsroom with a sort of, as you said, local, you know, it's localised content. I mean, obviously you're a national news brand, but it's, it's sort of getting those, some of those more local voices in there and sort of regional voices. Because um, obviously HuffPost mm-hmm. UK being on, sort of, you're a digital pure player in, yeah. the, in the language of the uh, industry. Um, but, but you're sort of almost seemingly bringing it to seems like a more traditional sort of newsroom setup, which I think... Well, I push back against that a bit because it sounds a bit boring, <laughs> which I don't think it is. We're not, we're not, we're not boring, but what I'm, what I'm doing in this first um, uh, phase of, you know, hiring those people is getting brilliant people from outside London with some more traditional reporting skills. Mm. Mostly because I think actually having those skills in the newsroom kind of brings the whole newsroom to a different level as well. Um, But I want to keep everything that is digital and savvy and fast and nimble and brilliant about HuffPost. You know, it's not, you know, we're not turning it into a a kind of BBC or Times-style kind of newsroom. Uh, You know, those, those reporters we've hired outside of London are really, really excited to be coming to work for somewhere where they can get a story up in two minutes and where their Twitter profile matters um, you know, really deeply, and where they can be on camera—that's part of the attraction for them as yeah. well. But you're sort of you're not 
you're not sort of a clickbaity website, I wouldn't you? No, God, no. Yeah, no, yeah, no, absolutely. no, absolutely no. Is that something um, you've No, we, like, our mission at the moment is to do the most relevant breaking news. Yes. Um, really brilliant original journalism, and that's the bit we're really growing at the moment, is, is where we can make our mark and be different. And then we've got our kind of life offering, lifestyle, parenting, that kind of thing. And I love that part of our journalism because it really connects with people's lives. And actually, there's loads of crossover between news and life, and, you know, and our teams are working really closely to bring all of that together into a more cohesive kind of um, whole in terms of running your newsroom, mm. what's you know what's important to you as an editor in terms of content specifically? Mm. Sort of what are you aiming to achieve with, with the Half Post brand when you're at the helm? Um, I mean, there's there's the kind of very basics, so you know, hundred percent accuracy, no no question. Let's get it right, right every single time, first time round. But I think what I want what I want to do is. You know, the, 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 I suppose the oldest school journalist in me wants to be the competition mm. every single time, not just in pace, but kind of scoops that make everyone else turn around and look. Um, you know, that's very much thinking behind hiring Jess Brammer. She, you know, knows the scoop and knows how to take a tip right through to landing a story that has impact and gets followed and makes everyone else look. So mm. that's the kind of, like, old school journalist in me. But there is a bit of me that wants to shrug that off as well and say, let's also just go and do the news that people really care about. And that's what Birmingham is about and getting under the skin of people's lives. So getting into news that you know might not feel as competitive in the journalistic circles, but people are going to think HuffPost gets it. Yeah. And you're not... Are you tr- so is traffic something that you're driven by or is that sort of a factor... They're factored into your news decisions, but not leading necessarily. Or I, I, I really don't want to do journalism that no one reads. I just, just don't see the point in it. And I think so. Traffic is very much one of the kind of impact measures we have to, you know, say whether something was successful or not. But there are other forms of impact. So you know, it might be kind of other people following us, or you know, getting a debate in Parliament. You know, so impact has different kind of layers to it. Um, but no, absolutely, traffic is traffic is important because it tells you whether you're chiming with the audience, whether you're re- reaching the right audience. Some traffic matters more than others. Returning users ma- matter more than kind of one-off clicks. Um, so it's something that feeds yeah. into your kind of decision making. Yes. Yeah, but it's not. We're not led by that. Not the be on the you did, I just, I'll really quote back to you from when you wrote about the move up to Birmingham. By the yeah. way, are you going to Birmingham with them? You're, yeah. You're, you're going to be there. Yep. Totally. <laughs> Looking forward to it? Yeah, no, I really am. There's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said, roughly paraphrasing you, mm. in the UK, journalists are spending less time out of the office among the people we write about, which we sort of touched mm. on earlier. If we can step away from our laptops, turn off social media and instead spend more time listening to people, I believe we will understand more and Mm. in doing so produce better journalism. How do you sort of reconcile that with the sort of online journalism Mm. model that's kind of prevalent? Do you think journalists should be spending less time on Twitter and more time out and about? I think they're totally meshed up together. You know, I think if you spent your whole life on Twitter, I don't think that's the real world. But if you use Twitter to connect with people and then go and interview them and share their story on Twitter and use it as a device within your storytelling and your story getting, you know, Twitter is totally crucial to journalists now. It's um, that way, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's really critical 
But, um, you know, the point of this is a lot of what we're going to be doing in Birmingham is asking really open-ended questions that aren't trying to kind of pin down the story straight away because we want to be led by the conversations we're having with people. And I think that's a very different style of telling stories. Mm. So I feel like I'd be a bit remiss mm. if I didn't talk to you about women in journalism mm. being one of the, the sort of... Because I'm a woman. Because you're a woman and you're in journalism. <laughs> it's true. You're ticking both boxes. Uh, but you're one of the yeah. few leading... In, in an editor's role in this country. Uh, I don't know, it is really... I mean, it's, it's, it's changing quite a lot. You've got Kath at The Guardian, right. Janine at BuzzFeed, you know, we're... Um, a small but powerful cohort. I mean, what did you make of it when obviously all the pay gap stuff mm. came out? I know that Oaths was about, I think, yeah, the median... Presumably you were under them at the time. You had a median gender pay gap of about 23.3%, mm. which is sort of in the higher end. Um, was that something sort of threw you a bit, or is it something... No, because it was the, one of the first questions I asked when I came in. I asked to see the full salary range, and I was looking for... Um, anything that I would feel uncomfortable with, whether it was gender pay gap or um, or just people doing equal jobs and getting paid differently. Um, but I wanted to get to a point where I could totally look myself in the eye and say, I am running a fair and well-paid newsroom, and I'm 100% satisfied that I am. But I do think if you put women in, in leadership positions, they just find it easier to recruit women than men do yeah I'm sure that's true and it Um, is a huge thrill for me to be working um for a female team in America um and I had um we were interviewing for a reporter the other day and right at the end she just said to us she said I've got one more thing to say I've never been interviewed by three women before and I think we all felt a little bit teary because she was like you know, someone who's really trying to make it into journalism in her late 20s, and this was, like, a really important thing. So it's something I'm really proud of, um, but it's it's not particularly something I've engineered. Um, one thing I did want to ask mm. you about was you're on the Cairn Cross Review advisory mm. panel, aren't you? Mm-hmm. How did that come about? How did, did you approached by uh, anyone to be a part of it, or did you go out looking for it? They just asked me. And who, in that case, is the DCMS, is it? Yes, yeah. So there's a secretariat within the DCMS that are kind of supporting Francis Cairncross and the panel to do the work. So um, they just asked. And you said yes straight away? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a a really very important piece of work. I was going to say, this is quite uh, quite a significant investigation Mm. for for journalism in the industry. Mm. I mean, it's sort of... I suppose what we've all been heading towards... Well, the government's now stepped in and gone, mm-hmm. OK, well, have a look at this. It's clearly worrying you all. Um, Are you claiming complete credit for it through well, your duopoly <laughs> campaign? Because you've been campaigning we have on the campaign. techos, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, we've been yeah. calling on Facebook and Google to, mm-hmm. to pay all back to, to publishers. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, now I guess it's over to the government. Um, and we'll see what they make of it. Well, they are supposed to be giving us recommendations. But can you mm-hmm. say anything about what you've been what you've been doing with it as it started yet yeah, I know they've just put out their first call for evidence today, today. when we're talking yeah. um, so it, I mean the short answer is no right. because we have to go through 
like um, the, uh, until January or early next year when we report I, I think the agreement is that we don't give chapter and verse as we go along um, but are you, work, are you doing work for them? I do, so the, I, I can say the, the way it's working is we meet about once a month um, focus on a particular issue there have been two meetings so far um, spent a lot of time thinking who we should take evidence from um, and um, and the lead up today was which was when we put out a call for evidence to try and kind of target the particular areas that we want to get views on and I think what I'm really impressed by is that it is, does feel like a an open process at the moment of really kind of gathering information and getting our collective heads around some really really complex issues that go to the heart of freedom of the press and the sustainability of the press. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, presumably a lot of your revenue comes from online advertising, mm-hmm. sort of digital display, I imagine, and sponsored content, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are those sort of your main... Yeah, so sources? I think we've got quite a diverse kind of advertising um, uh, brief for HuffPost from kind of um, programmatic to a reserve to some really fantastic and exciting um, sponsored content um, which I was really focused on when I came in and I do think that is a big opportunity for places like HuffPost um, one of the first things I did when I came in was rewrite all our kind of um, labelling for sponsored content so that we were really, really transparent about what the involvement of any um, um, any commercial partner was with that content so that we could, we could be quite bold about how we do sponsored content. Um, and I think kind of in the past, lots of places have probably fallen down or, or it's not reached its kind of potential because... Um, sponsored content was pushed into a corner separate from the journalists and told to kind of get on with it and then an editor would say yes or no to whether it could run or not and my concern about um, commercial content was that it it need for everyone for us as HuffPost but also for the commercial partner it needed to feel authentically HuffPost for it to work I don't want things running on my website that don't feel like they would run on my website Mm. so we've got quite proactive and we've got a really good relationship with Riot who are our um, sponsored content partner and we work really closely to help them shape the ideas and respond to briefs Um, and they're I mean they're a brilliant set of um, creative people as well Um, and um, and the idea is to get to a place where um, where what they're producing is really on brand um, and but also really transparent about what the commercial element is within that. It's something I am really supportive of with the provisos that it's editorially true and commercially transparent. So I've put some really kind of tight kind of rules around it yeah. and, and then said this is an opportunity for us to make money, but it's also an opportunity to pay for the journalism we want to do anyway, yeah. and that's where... We've just started to see some success that I'm really proud of. Um, HuffPost has always had a tradition of reporting kind of solutions and good news as well as bad news. And I think that was a very digital trick. 
um, that was really important to our kind of heritage. And one of the things we've done with that area of our journalism is develop a strand of reporting called Humankind, which is really reporting about kind of everyday acts of human kindness and, and the good things that people do. I think that's one of the reasons why people feel good about HuffPost, because we give space to those kind of stories. So Humankind was something we're doing completely editorially, and we um, have just had it sponsored by Philips, and it's entirely our own work, um, with some commercial features added on, um, with clear, transparent labelling. Mm. And, um, and that felt like a real breakthrough moment. That's journalism we want to do that we're getting additional revenue for yeah. from commercial partners. Because um, there's always obviously been the traditional mm. editorial commercial divide, isn't mm. it? Do you think sort of now in the, the state that the industry's in, see, as we've seen today mm. with some of the figures coming out, that, that revenues have more than halved across the industry in sort of a decade mm. and, and, and figures are plummeting generally. Do you think that sort of line is having to be a little bit more blurred now and that editorial teams yeah. have to be a bit more commercially aware almost as you're saying there, but with mm. with rules that are sort of clear-cut red lines. But So I think kind of like if you if if I had the choice, we wouldn't do it. Yes. And the, the money would grow on trees and we would do all the brilliant journalism that we're doing and all the more we want to do. Um, but, you know, we know how tough it is at the moment. And so rather than letting this kind of do its own thing... Um, I want to make sure that it's editorially sound. So be really proactive in how we're working with um, our partners on that um, and make sure it's still journalism and where there are commercially, like where it is commercial, it's really clearly labelled to the readers. But anything we're doing needs to pass that reader's test. Is this right for our readers? Um, Can I... Get your view on Google and Facebook. How mm. do they sort of work for you and HuffPost brand? The, I presume Facebook is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a source of traffic for you mm-hmm. uh, and Google too. But how do you sort of work with them? How do you see them? Do you see them as mm. taking, you know, snatching the, the, the food from out of your hand? Or do you see them as giving giving you something that you wouldn't have otherwise? Um, so, I mean... Just to explain a bit about kind of our distribution model, we are really distributed, which means we have traffic that comes from our own website and app and, you know, a loyal audience that comes back to us every day and every week. Um, And then we have traffic from Facebook, social. um, We have traffic from Google and search. We have traffic and a really important increasing amount of traffic from third-party platforms. So that's the Apple and updates of the world. And um, I think that's a really important area because when going back to what we were talking about at the beginning and, and people who are unused, um, I think a lot of people are flicking through headlines on their mobile phones and that's an increasing kind of portal for people to get into news. So us being in that place, I think, is really, really important. Um, so that's the kind of context. So Facebook and Google search are important referrers but there is a much bigger context that that um, includes our own site and other areas as well. You don't rely on them? Um, We don't rely on them, no. I mean you could take away any one of those parts and it would hurt but we would survive, you know. So so it's more secure, apart from our own platforms, that's really critically important to us, particularly the app because the people read so deeply and they come back to us again and again, and that's you know that's what we want to grow. 
But Facebook and Google in particular um, for HuffPost have been really, really important referrers. Facebook has declined hugely in the last year, along with most other places um, as they've kind of shifted away from news. Um, right, yeah, with the new algorithms. And... Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of, um, you know, would we rather have that traffic back? Yes, because it's quite nice engaged traffic. Um, Did you get a lot of revenue from Facebook? Presumably not, not too much. Not a huge amount, but it is where people engage with journalism quite a lot. But, you know, we have also at the same time grown um, Apple as a referrer, you know, from practically nothing to a lot. Right. So um, so we've made it up. It? That's quite key for us, yeah. So maybe they'll become the more important preferer in the future? I mean, where I feel safest is having a strategy in all these places that's yes. growing it in all these places and then looking at how you convert those audiences to app users. You know, that's that's where I feel safest. I'm not going to put everything into Apple now or into Update or into Google search because, you know, that's where you become vulnerable. Um, But what the the challenge then is to make sense of that audience because you know less about those audiences. Um, They're in lots of different places. They have different habits. And if you're talking about growing loyalty and that kind of young female audience how do you make sense of an audience that's coming to you from 10 different places? And that's why the kind of onward journey to app, and we're just doing some work on the app at the moment to encourage that, um, is really important. I don't know if you can say, because you're Mm. part of the advisory panel, but do you have sort of an idea of what you would like to see, sort of putting that to one side, just you, Polly Curtis is uh, editor-in-chief of Post UK, Mm. is there a a solution that you would like to see the industry... Well, I mean, I, I can't, you know, obviously can't say anything within the realms of Cairncross, um, but um, I think outcome? the best outcome, without kind of getting into specifics, um, I think what is really important um, is that whatever intervention you make, be it state or commercial or... Um, through incentives or, you know, whatever intervention happens or change happens, that you are um, legislating in a way that doesn't just freeze and protect an industry at this moment in time, but that allows for innovation to come in as well. Um, And I think that is because a lot of the concern focuses on people reading newspapers less or people reading local news less. And what I'm really interested in is that audience view and people consuming news less. And in some ways that's young people, marginalised people, um, you know, less educated people. You know, I, I, I try to see things through an audience lens. Um, so... The, for for those audiences to re-engage with news, which is where the big demographic democratic sorry um, gap is, we need innovation. We don't need to just protect the newspapers we have or just protect local journalism. We need a new kind of journalism that's going to engage those people. So you know, and that's not to say you know I don't think anyone should do anything to harm newspapers because they're paying for a lot of the journalism out there and it's really, really important that we shouldn't hasten the demise. Um, And um, 
And I think also on, on local journalism, clearly a massive democratic kind of imperative there. Um, but I just kind of feel like it's important to, th- to, in any kind of intervention you make, protect something that can innovate as well. Hmm. The entire industry has seen um, Facebook and Google... Um, you know, there's interesting language about it. You say they cannibalised everything and yeah. they've eaten up the digital advertising. Gobbled it up. Yeah. Gobbled it up. Um, at, but, you know, they've actually just created something that was really, really worked for advertisers. And they kind of won, you know. But... Now they might be uh, now they real You know, increasingly they realise that without us to provide the facts and, um, you know proper quality journalism for their platforms, they will be unstuck. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, that that's across the industry. Yeah. They, you know, they've... And you're no exception to that? I'm not. <laughs> well, I, what I did want to ask you was, um, have you ever thought about, would you ever think about putting up a paywall on HuffPace UK? No. You wouldn't? No. Fair enough. No, because if your mission is about serving the unused, that is a barrier yeah. that you would create. And actually, you know, that mission is influenced by all the places that are putting up pay paywalls. So Lydia came from the New York Times, which is the best newspaper in the world, arguably, and has the most fantastic um, paywall scheme that works really, really well, is making it work financially. But who is it excluded from the conversation and from that journalism? And arguably in, in America, where you don't have the BBC, that's even more important in terms of straightforward and you know in-depth reporting. Um, so if you are about trying to reach people who wouldn't otherwise read news... Um, it doesn't fit with your mission. It wouldn't, fit, it wouldn't fit with the mission. Um, but, you know, there, there could be exceptions for that, you know, Right now, I'm not thinking about premium products or anything like that. I'm really not thinking about that. I'm thinking about kind of, you know, the newsroom I've got and how to make it the best that it can be. Um, but, you know, there could be exceptions and, and ways that you can do that. And the only thing that comes back to me, because, you know, my instinct and from the evidence I see at the moment is that young people aren't paying for news and they won't pay for news. But young people are paying for Netflix and they are paying for subscription services and Amazon, um, they're sharing it quite a lot as well and getting around that in different ways. Yes. But, um, but you know, there is, there is a habit-forming thing there. So I'm not saying that in the future you wouldn't rule out that um, um, some kind of subscription package for news would have young people buying into it. Um, but our mission as it stands pretty much rules it out. And uh, I'll just finish off, finish off with a, a very classic journalism question, I suppose. You've been at HuffPost UK for almost a year. Yeah. I mean, what's it been like? There have been any highs and lows so far, things you weren't expecting, uh, you know, when you came over? Or has it all been fairly plain? So plain? many highs and lows. I feel like you've made quite a mark and quite a number of changes since you've come in. Yeah, I think my team would probably agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many highs and lows. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing opportunity I have here with this scale team, with this scale of brand that we've got to play with. 
Um, and um, brilliant journalists in my newsroom and a commitment from Oath and our owners to really kind of support that journalism. Um, I, f- I feel so incredibly lucky um, to be in a job like that at this time mm. as well. To be hiring at this time feels like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and um, and that means I've run at things really hard because I feel like within the context of the industry this is a massive opportunity um, Are there more hires to come further down the road or are you sort of like we've done our big push now? So I mean the first thing I did was kind of the senior editing hires the second of these kind of out of London and Emma Ewell kind of um, uh, kind of shoe leather yeah. hires um, I could think of 30 other people I'd like to hire and, you know, lots of different skills that I'd love to bring into the newsroom. But I think for this year, we're probably at the right scale now. Um, so they're 45 strong editorial. Yeah. Are they all full-time, are they? Or... Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think a few people staffers. work for... Yeah, all... Uh, all ne- yes, nearly all staffers, yeah. Um, and I suppose going... Forward, mm-hmm. if you like corporate jargon, or from here on out, mm-hmm. what would you, uh, you know, what are you sort of looking to do with it? Where would you like to take it further? Scoops. Scoops. Yeah. Get the scoops in. Yeah. I feel like we've, um, through the hiring we've done, we have raised standards hugely and focused on the things that we really, really care about. And I think the next bit is the scoops and that's what I hope things like Birmingham will bring you know those surprising stories that are going to make everyone else stop and listen Excellent, Uh, Polly Curtis thank you very much for joining me Thank you so much Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 